So the turn chapter 5, we'll read 12 through the following, 12 through the end. Why don't we read now? First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. But test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter that Paul has written to the Thessalonians to teach them the very basics of Christianity that they needed to hear, things he was not able to complete because he was driven from the city by fierce persecution. And we thank you for the way the people of Thessalonica received his letter as it truly is the word of the Lord, and that they rejoiced in his teaching, and that they would listen to all that he had to say to them, because he spoke through the Holy Spirit for God. And we pray, Lord, now as we consider these last remarks, that you would help us to really understand them, to take them to heart, to be encouraged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's a little disjointed since it's not one thought, but they're really his final thoughts for them. And he starts off with a request. Brothers, pray for us. Now he had just earlier called them all to pray without ceasing, verse 17 of chapter 5. And we know we're to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Romans 12:12. 12, 12. We're to be praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication, Ephesians 6.18. And to continue steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, Colossians 4.2. Paul often called people to prayer, and it's an important part of the Christian life. One of the most important things the Christian does to grow in their sanctification, that they might be whole and complete, as he was talking about back in verse 23. Now, we all know, and it's not the topic here, but we are to pray for everyone. Paul tells us to, he urges us that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of him. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. We are called to be praying for all people, for their salvation, yes, for their growth, for peace. 
even though the wicked and the godless may rage against the kingdom, we are to pray for peace for them, that they will not be disrupting the kingdom, that they will not be as evil as they could be. I think every man has in his heart the ability to become an Adolf Hitler or a Mao Zedong or a Pol Pot. But the spirit restrains us, and we are to be praying for that as well as their salvation. We also we know we are to pray for each other and with each other. Uh, James tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. It's an important part of the Christian life to be in prayer. But here specifically, Paul is calling them to pray for him as he prays for everyone else. He opened this letter saying, we give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I was back in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. He prays more detailed in his letter to the Colossians where he writes, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Many of the same things he has mentioned in the passage we just read. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul is always praying for them. He wants them to pray for him, as Paul prays for all the people of God. And I know sometimes we get a little annoyed with people when they have these unspoken prayers or when they ask us, pray for me. Okay, what for? We don't know. And I've heard people get quite annoyed and say that's a bad thing to do. But right here, Paul is saying, pray for me. And that's it. He doesn't need to say more. Why? Well, because it's obvious for us the things we can pray for for people. Pray for strength. Pray for grace. Pray for the things we just talked about in the previous verses that Paul has prayed for. And as we go through more verses this morning, there are a great many things we can pray for that we know about that people need. We all need strength to resist sin. We all need the endurance to endure our trials. We all need hope. We all need faith. We all need to grow in in grace. And so these things are all, I think, really implied when we ask somebody for prayer. No need to get annoyed. We'll see there are many things, especially in Paul's concern, that anybody who knew him and knew his ministry, or really who knew anybody who ministered for the Lord, we can come up with a laundry list of things that need to be prayed about. Remember what Paul said about his ministry? On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, meaning the Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Perhaps the saddest and the worst of those dangers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, some of them from his labors and his toil and his hardship, some from the dangers 
and some, as he says next, from his anxiety for the churches. He says, in hunger and thirst, without food, cold and exposure. And apart from all of these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I know that anxiety for the church, for God's people, is a cause for many pastors to have sleepless nights, myself at times included. He says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? That was from 2 Corinthians 11, 26-29. All of those things Paul mentions are things that drove him to his knees to pray. And they are also things that we can pray for. He wants them to pray for for him, and we can pray for for any of the church leaders. And any of those who, as he mentions earlier, who are labor among you and are over you in the Lord, back in verse 12. Now, they're important targets for Satan. To him, Paul, the missionaries, the ministers, the elders... They're the enemy commanders to Satan. They're high-value targets. And so pastors and elders in particular, they face many fierce temptations and many fiery trials. And they need prayer. Paul doesn't make his need secret. He goes on to say, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, which is where he is right now and where he's writing his letter. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, that we, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I really want to be more diligent in my studies to not be to the point where I need to be educated through facing actual death. Uh, Paul, however, was very diligent, and a godly man, and yet God still put him in that situation to teach him and to grow him and so that he would write about it. Anyway, he continues, we re- he delivered us from such a p- deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. But you also must help us by prayer. Paul sees the prayers of the people of God as a helper for him, their best way to help him in face of the dangers and the troubles he was facing. You also must help us in prayer so that we may give thanks on on our behalf for the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. 2 Corinthians 1, 8-11. Now the work of Paul is a missionary and apostle, the work of the pastors in the local churches there, and really all the way through to our day, the work of the service of God is very difficult, very painful. Often we face opposition from friend and foe alike, and he's saying here, he's calling on them, you must help us with your prayers. Paul goes on to say, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, the Christian ministry and the Christian life are really, they're a war. They're a battle. It's endless for us as Christians. And we strive together by praying for each other. 
by praying for the things we know and just praying for the strength for the things we don't know. Striving side by side with Paul in prayer, striving side by side with the pastors and the elders and the churches and all of those in leadership positions in your prayers. He says that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judah, one of the reasons he wants prayer, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Uh, That was where he got arrested, delivering that service for the saints, by the way. And by God, that by God I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So may God give peace to all of you. Amen. Romans 15. He would go to Rome, but not the way he intended. He would be arrested on that journey that he mentions. Paul also knew his own weaknesses as a man, as a Christian. Not just the ministry, but living the godly life in Christ Jesus. He talks about this in Romans 7, where he says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not know what it is to covet. If the law has not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So one of Paul's besetting sins seems to have been covetousness. You'll remember he was rising in Judaism beyond his years, beyond anyone else's own age. He had that bright future of being a leader, a rabbi, honored, respected, given a nice home, given everything he needed. And he gave it all up and is walking destitute from city to city, sometimes having to work a job to feed himself and his ministry team. And apparently he struggled a bit with covetousness. He goes on in verse 15 to say, For I do not understand my own actions, for what I do, for I do not what I want, and I do the very things I hate. And again in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not is what I keep on doing. He struggled with his sins, even as a believer, even as an, a pastor, an elder, an apostle. In verse 24, he has that great Statement, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul was a sinner. I remember I've shared my testimony before, but as an atheist coming into the Bible Presbyterian Church and hearing the first Christian, real Christian sermon, the pastor said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That was the message that week. He said, even me as the pastor in every day, Small and great ways, I sin against God. Paul also did, and he knew that, and he understood that, and he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's something to pray about for pastors, for elders. I used to think as an atheist that Christians thought they were perfect and that pastors must be the most perfect people, but I learned rather quickly that's not what the Bible teaches about us, and life has shown that like Paul, we all sin in many ways. But in verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, he's not suggesting that it was okay to sin. I've heard people say that try to use this passage that way. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't sound okay with sin. He hates it. He loathes it. The thing I hate, that I do. Wretched man that I am. He wasn't perfect, and he knew it, but he longed to be perfect. 
He said, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. That those of us who are mature think this way, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only hold true to what you have attained. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Paul was pressing on towards that perfection that is the goal of every Christian, the goal that is only reached, as we talked about a few weeks ago, when we reach heaven. But it is the goal of our life. And it was one of the things Paul needed prayer about. Now, I don't think Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. I think it might have been one of his disciples or students. But I think he would certainly understand and agree with what the author of Hebrews says on this matter. He's talking about obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's another prayer request. We will give an account for all of the sheep. He says, let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clean conscience and a desire to act honorably in all things. And I urge you more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Hebrews 13, 17 through 19. So Paul has given in his ministry a number of obvious needs and called people to pray for him, to pray for the pastors to pray for the, the, the team that he was traveling with and evangelizing through all of the world at that time, and he's now in Greece. What did he need strength for, prayer for? What do all need ministers and elders really need prayer for? Well, first, the strength for the ministry. Physical strength, mental strength, there's a lot of work to be done that requires thinking and, and emotional strength. Now he talks about his anxiety for the churches. You share the gospel, you evangelize people, you disciple them, and they get angry. They blame you. They say you're being unfair, unjust, accuse you of slander. I remember a pastor telling me once he had preached a sermon and somebody came up to him and accused him of slandering them because he was using them as an example. He said, but I really had no idea what I was using them as an example for. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of mental fortitude. Pray for that, for the elders and the pastors. His anxiety for the churches to be relieved. You know, he was anxious for them falling. They were facing persecution. They were facing false teachers. The insidious worldliness was trying to force its way into the churches and leading people astray. And some were departing from the faith. And he was anxious about that. Pray for them to relieve that anxiety by listening carefully to the word of God, by growing spiritually, by seeking to do what is right, by praying for one another, by demonstrating that brotherly love which sets us apart from the world. Pray also that he could be delivered from his adversaries, foreign and domestic, both the Jews and the Gentiles hated the gospel. Because there are really only two camps in the world, right? There's the worship of the one true living God in the way he's prescribed, and there's all the rest. 
The Jews may have felt they belonged to God, but God calls them a synagogue of Satan in the book of Revelation. They had departed from the faith. So he had enemies within the church and without the church who wanted to destroy him, who wanted to stop the work of God from going out. He also makes an appeal for, or the author of Hebrews makes an appeal for a clear conscience. They make, Paul makes many decisions about how he can glorify God and how he can serve God and what he needs to teach and what he needs to say and how he needs to counsel and how he needs to disciple. And let's face it, it doesn't always work out the way we want. Is our conscience clear? Did we do it right? Did we do the best we could? Did we preach the truth in love? Were we a stumbling block? Or was it Christ in the gospel? Now, pray for us to have and maintain a clear conscience by doing what is right. Also, by not stumbling into sin, as Paul speaks of. And a clear conscience because we will have to give an account for our ministry. We will have to give an account for every sheep that God has ever entrusted to us. Every person we've had the opportunity to share the gospel to, all the work that we have done for the kingdom, we will give an account for it to God. And lastly, and it's sometimes forgotten, for joy and refreshment. You know, if every day is a battle, if every day is a fight, you will eventually burn out, even if you're serving God. Nobody has the physical, mental, and emotional strength to endure day after day, month after month, year after year. At some point, it breaks. God's people can be a great help to his servants. I know when I would come back from my missionary time in Cambodia and visit America, some of the churches were a real trial. Some of the churches were loving and took care of me and you know, refreshed my spirit and gave me strength again. And I think that's what Paul was asking for, that time of refreshing, that time of seeing joy with the brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember my pastor, when I grew up, talking about, he put up a, a hammock in the backyard, so after lunch he could take out his book and he could read in the hammock and preparing for his ministry. He, he read, he probably spent 30 hours a week reading <laughs> you know, books about what he was doing and about the ministry. And people would, church members would drive by, beep the horn and shake their finger. You naughty man. (laughs) Not refreshing his spirit at all. He's now in his probably 90s and retired, but he's still a dear friend and brother. And I enjoy his stories because they help me. Um, His children, raised up in that environment, you're always under the microscope. People wanting to find fault with the pastor's kid so that they can say, I'm okay, and I don't need to worry. The times of refreshing that people give to God's servants are truly valuable to them. And they often happen when we travel. When pastors come to visit or pass through and they stay with you or they visit the church, it's a real opportunity for that joy and refreshment to come. Anyway, so he starts off with a very important topic. Pray for us. Pray for me. For the ministry, for the work of the Lord, and for the pastor and the elder personally. And then he writes, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Peter says the same thing. Greet one another with the kiss of love. 
Peace to you who are in Christ Jesus, 1 Peter 5.14. The practice of a holy kiss was a common thing amongst the Jews. We see it in the Old Testament a lot. Remember when Jacob went to stay with Laban? Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, and he ran out to meet him and he embraced him and he kissed him and brought him into his house. The kiss was a a welcome, a sign of fellowship, a sign of love and wanting to honor the person. Uh, We see that especially in the Psalm 2. It says, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. You shall serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest you be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. A holy kiss was a sign of more than that. It was a sign of oneness and fellowship, of honor and respect, of camaraderie. All of those things were carried in that idea. You remember Absalom when he was plotting his great rebellion against his father David. He would sit at the gate and trick people into thinking the king wouldn't listen to them, but he would. And anybody who embraced, who accepted him, he would run over and hug and kiss, showing that, you know, we are brothers against the evil of the honest king. Uh, Very deceitful. And we see that, of course, in Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. said, the one I kiss, that is the one you should arrest. And that kiss was to the rabbi to show his, his love and respect and honor for the rabbi and his brotherly love. And so it was very hypocritical, very deceitful. Paul, I think, is exhorting them here to show their, their camaraderie, their, their respect, their honor, their love for each other and calling on them to greet each other in this manner. Paul wants to see that built up, that that unity in Christ, encouraged and enriched, so that we can mutually encourage each other in the Lord, that we can be stronger. Uh, Judas was a target, or Jesus was a target of Judas as a false brother. Paul also in his service was a target of false brothers. And I don't think he's calling us to just give a kiss because it's an obligation. He's talking about, you know, show that unity to each other and mean it. Be sincere, not deceitful. A lie is a lie, and it's a sin. And so that's the main point here, a holy greeting, one without deception or hypocrisy, one without immorality. And it was common in their culture, not as common in the Greek culture, but they did have that idea of a greeting kiss throughout that region. Paul tells them, tells all of us to put to death what is earthly, the sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when living in them. But now you have put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the image of its creator, Colossians 3, 5 through 10. 
The idea being that our relationship with each other is to be a pure and holy and mutually beneficial relationship, not like the worldly relations we have. I've been asked, does it have to be a kiss? I'm from the East Coast. We, We shake hands. We don't hug. We don't kiss. We shake hands. Uh, So I was checking online, and I found a site that actually documents the greeting practice. Places that have one kiss, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Peru, the Philippines. Two kisses, one on each cheek. Spain, Italy, Greece, Germany, Hungary, Romania, Croatia, Bosnia, Brazil, and some Middle Eastern countries, although never with the opposite sex in the Middle East. And then there are actually places that have three kisses. One, two, three. Uh, Belgium, Slovenia, Macedonia, where Paul was writing. Montenegro, Serbia, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Egypt, and Russia, where there's also a bear hug at the end. Uh, Back east, it's a handshake. Out here in California, it's usually a hug. Does it matter which one you use? Uh, I think it's culturally dependent. In some areas, the opposite sex will hug or give a kick on the cheek. In other areas, that would be considered very immoral. When I was in Cambodia, you didn't touch people of the opposite sex at all. That was just not done in public, and not even with your wife in public. There's some cultural idea built into this, but we're not being culturally accommodating, you know, which can be, is often used as an excuse for sin. But we are to greet each other in a holy manner to show our united, being united in Christ and united by his blood. Uh, whether it takes a kiss, form of one kiss, two kisses, three kisses, a handshake, a hug, I don't think that's what's in mind. I think it's really that idea of Christian unity. And he wants them to greet each other for him, because he cannot be with them. In other words, give my love to the brothers, give my affection to the brothers. I'm one of you. And then he goes on to say, having given, asked for prayer for himself, asked them to greet each other for him. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, this verse is worthy of a sermon on its own, but we've covered almost everything I would say in that sermon in the last couple of months as we've gone through First Thessalonians, who, as he mentions this a few times in the, in the book, of their hearing of things that Paul, when Paul preached to them and he brought them the word of God verbally, he said, I thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, you heard it as what you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. That was 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He had been grateful to them that they had heard the word he preached and understood that it was not Paul's opinion. It was God's word. And now we have it in writing for us to read. And he's written it here, and he says, I, I put you under oath to read this to the brothers. I love Peter's testimony concerning the idea. He also writes of the coming of the day of the Lord, as Paul does in this book. 
And after writing about it to them in some detail, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. That's essentially what he just prayed for in verse 32, Paul. But Peter's saying the same thing. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Now remember, Paul and Peter had a little falling out over the Judaizers as Peter withdrew from the the Gentiles and ate only with the Judaizers and the Jews. And Paul rebuked him publicly and he, he apparently repented. And he still calls Paul his beloved brother. Uh, rebuke a wise man when he sins and he'll love you, the proverb says. Rebuke a fool and he'll hate you. Peter was no fool. He was a godly and wise man. But anyway, he says, as our beloved brother wrote you with the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. I think Peter had to have this very book in mind since that's the parallels between what Peter writes about the end times and what Paul is writing are very strong. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, the greatest understatement in the Bible, and in which ignorant and unstable people twist to their own destruction, and this is the key part, as they do the other scriptures. Peter considered Paul's written writings to be scripture. And he says, you therefore, beloved, know this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Uh, a great danger. But grown grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Second Peter 3, 14 through 18. How do we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord? How do we grow in grace? Isn't that sanctification? Isn't that what Paul has just written to them about? Didn't Jesus say, sanctify them in the truth? Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. We grow in grace not through our imaginations, not through our passions. We grow in grace through knowledge given to us through the word of God. That is a key point that Paul makes in all of his writings, and he calling them here under oath to read this to everyone so that everyone can hear these basic instructions of what it means to be a Christian, how to live a Christian life, and where our hope should lie. And if, if we are only of hope in Christ in this life, we are all men to be most pitied. He's calling on them in this letter to live for the day of the Lord, live for the coming of the Lord, live for that eternity that is promised, live for that reward that will be given and we learn those things only through our reading, our study, our prayer, our meditation on the word that we might know what it is to be a Christian. Paul wrote to Timothy that all scripture was breathed out by God and profitable. I mean, remember, it's not just God's word, but it's all profitable. That's one of the reasons I like to go through whole books, that I don't miss over profitable things that might be Embarrassing, like that horrible section on sexual immorality we did a few months ago. That was embarrassing to preach, but it has to be done because it's profitable for us to hear that, to be reminded of that. It says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
Isn't that what he just prayed in his little prayer benediction, that we may be perfect, complete? Equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. This is what Paul has wanted for them in this letter as well. And the way to get there is through the word. Not just really reading it, but understanding it, through explaining it. He says here, I charge you in the present, or he says, here I put you under oath to read it. To Timothy, he writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now, we understand that to mean when people want to hear it and what they want to hear, as well as what they don't want to hear and when they don't want to hear it. Everything, the whole counsel of God. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That's not ear tickling. That's giving it to them straight and being honest. Preaching the truth in love. With complete patience and teaching. Yes, complete patience. All patience, it says. The word literally. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. You know, it is commanded here that they read this to everyone because it is the word of God. It is the instruction that will help keep them from wandering off into myths, into the doctrines of heretics, the doctrines of demons, as Paul goes so far as to call it, wandering off into the weeds, off the path. Now, it's interesting, the Old Testament God often said to the Jews, you know, you shall be careful to do all the things that I command you. You shall not add to them, you take away from them. You shall not depart from them to the right or to the left. It's a narrow, difficult way, but we need to keep the path. And the only way to keep the path is to know the path. And the only way to know the path is through the reading of the word. And so he puts them under oath to have this read to everyone. Now, we often don't listen to God's word the way we should. Many times we don't do it, nor do others. We, we listen with indifference instead of diligence. You know, here is the great one, the Lord himself, speaking to us in the word. We need to have our minds focused on what he is saying, learn from it, meditate upon it, apply it to our life. Not be indifferent, but be diligent. We listen often with deaf ears. All right, I don't want to hear about that. And I remember everyone was talking about sharing the gospel with a lesbian woman who said she was a Christian. And what is her response? I don't want to hear any more about this. You know, we listen with deaf ears like that. We need to listen even though it can be painful. Sometimes people listen with a closed heart. We really need to open our heart, fill it with the word, treasure it in our heart, as Psalm 119 says so that it can be a lamp to our feet, a guide for our path and our life to keep us from sin. Of course, many times people listen to be entertained rather than enlightened. You know, we, want, we want to hear an exciting sermon, a rousing sermon. We want a great preacher who's eloquent. He knows what to say and how to say it to get everybody fired up. We want that entertainment value. But really, we should be focused on the enlightenment value. Is our heart being enlightened by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit so that we can grow in our faith and in our practice? 
We need really to remember that God is the one speaking in his word. That's why you're on, you put him under oath to read it, because it is not Paul's provincial ideas. It's not Paul's antiquated ideas. He's not being quaint. It's not a personal matter. Now, many godless teachers today try to persuade people of that. Well, you know, that was what Paul said 2,000 years ago, but society is involved. Our knowledge has grown. Our understanding is greater. You know, we don't need to be limited by his provincialness. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Scripture says. God's word is perfect and pure. It doesn't need to be adapted. It doesn't need to be adjusted. It doesn't need to be changed. It needs to be listened to as God himself speaking to us through men, through the writing of men. To be indifferent, to be scornful, and to be rebellious of what the word says is to be indifferent, scornful, and rebellious to God. You can't put it any blunter than that. I would doubt the faith of somebody who rejects the word of God. I don't see how they can believe in the God of Scripture if they don't believe in the Scripture. They may believe in the God of their imaginations, but they need to be called to repent and to know the true God from the Word. And I think that's why he closes with the statement, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace is that free and unmerited gift we get of salvation, but it is also how we grow in our life how we grow in our practice. We have the grace of God given to us that though we are sinners, that though we struggle, that though we need to cry out, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death, through God's grace we are delivered. Through God's grace we grow. And so it's important to pray for that and to ask for that, as Paul does. I think this letter has been a struggle at times, but a joy at times. And a reminder of what it is we are living for. As I started off this book, I said we are living for that day when God restores all things, for the new heaven, the new earth, the eternity with God. You know, this is just this brief time where we are sojourners and foreigners and we have eternity to look forward to. This is like that year, few years we spent in school compared to the lifetime of work. This is better than that and greater than that. We have now a time to live for God, to live for the future, to put up, store up treasure in heaven and reward for us. And that's what Paul has been calling them to do, to, to shift their focus from war, the world and all of its cares and concerns, to remember that day that is coming, and then to live as a godly Christian that will please God and that will have a reward in eternity. Let Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reminders we've had throughout this book to to turn away from the things of the world and to put our hope and our trust and our joy in you and in the eternity and the things that you have promised. For all your promises, you will be faithful to keep. We know and we trust you and we pray that we would be diligent to put to use the means of grace that you've given us, especially as we recalled in this passage today, the reading of the word, the knowledge of the word, the growth of the knowledge of the word. So we pray, Lord, for your blessing and grace upon us 
as we set about our life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.